Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, May the 5th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Welcome back to the program. Hope everybody's had a great weekend. Uh, Not a great weekend for the Mets in Milwaukee and, and one of the tougher weeks that this team has had in a while since last year and probably since Brody Van Wagenen took over as general manager, probably the toughest week. And it's going to be a defining week. We we have a jam-packed show for you. Uh, I'll get to the Mets in just a minute, a lot to get into there. But joining me in a little bit, Danny Nobler, a longtime baseball writer, has a book out, Unwritten, Bat Flips, The Fun Police and Baseball's New Future. Pretty appropriate because we saw a, a certain young player from the Cincinnati Reds uh, take over City Field this week, and uh, you know, even I looked at Pete Alonso uh, and his celebration last night after his home run, and I wonder what's this this game uh, coming to between the Jesse Winker uh, week at City Field and Alonso's antics. Um, uh, it'd be interesting to see what Danny came up with as he spoke to a number of individuals around the game about, I guess, the culture of the game changing and becoming more like the NBA, the NFL and so on and so forth. So he'll be joining me in just a few minutes. But we'll start off with the Mets, who, uh, as you all know, were swept in uh, Milwaukee this weekend. 
tough 18 inning loss last night. Uh, really, uh, winning last night um, would have changed, I think, a lot. Even if they lost today, would have changed quite a bit. Uh, they learned that Steven Matz uh, has been suffering from some nerve irritation in his arm, so he's going to get that checked out. His next start is in question. And in general, you had a week where you lost two games when Edwin Diaz gave up a home run. You don't expect to do that very often. You lost a couple of really tough games. You lost four really tough games this week. And if you split those, I think this monologue goes a lot different. If you take all four, it's way different. And unfortunately, the other extreme happened. The Mets lost all four. So where does that put us? It puts us at the, and I always use the term, the first thunderbolt of the year. Really some tough losses, an injury that could potentially have some uh, long-term impact. And we'll see if Matz is out for any length of time, more than than maybe a start or two. And uh, if they think it's going to be an issue throughout the rest of the season where he can miss extended time. If this team still is interested in competing, and, and I don't see why they wouldn't be, because despite the uh, recent slow start or slow start to the month of May and maybe the, the not-so-great end to April, I think they need to go out and get Dallas Keuchel ASAP. I've been flip-flopping a little bit on this. I talked about how it's really the bullpen that's an issue, and if they could get Kimbrell on a one-year deal. Look, if you could get both those guys on one-year deals and all you're losing is money, and I know the draft picks and international bonus money are at play right now, and that's probably what's holding up these guys from getting signed anyway, but if you could jump in now and give them some guarantees – You'd be ahead of the curve with a lot of the teams. And then you would be going against the mantra that Van Wagenen has, which is win now and win in the future, because you would be giving up assets in the future with international, potentially international money. I think they'll be at stake, draft picks. I don't know exactly with the new collective bargaining agreement how much they would lose, but they certainly would lose a draft pick in the June draft. And I think a lot of fans would say, hey, you know, we want to win now. And you don't know what these draft picks are going to be. And it's true, and you may regret that in five or six years when you see who could have been picked at that spot. You just don't know if the team will pick them. So uh, I think that certainly if Matt's is out extended period, the Keiko conversation has to be more and more of a serious conversation because you can't go through the rotation with two uncertain days, especially with a bullpen that I think, even with the loss of Wilson and Familia, and I believe Wilson will be back tomorrow uh, for the San Diego series, it still is a little bit short, and I think you have some issues where a Lugo may not be able to go every day. Uh, you don't want to burn Gazelman out. Uh, you're relying on guys like Zamora and now Bachelor and Peterson and and uh, Gagno. I think I said his name right. I always been trying to say his name 52 different ways. Gagno uh, is becoming a little bit intriguing. Uh, you don't want to burn those guys out because you want to put them in a position where they could be successful. So. That's that's number one. Uh, number two, a loss like they had on Saturday night where, yeah, they got hosed by Angel Hernandez in the 18th inning. It's just so agitating to see such a mediocre, poor-performing individual continue to keep his job and, and keep it because of his nationality and because of his litigious nature. But that's a whole nother story for another day. It's not even worth getting into and making the podcast about that. Um, you just get... You get frustrated because it was a game that they could have won so many different ways if they had just put up one crooked number. It's a game that if you win could really propel you forward. And even though you there's a lot of collateral damage, i.e. the bullpen, you, you could navigate it and feel a little bit better when you come away with a victory. As it is, they lost that game, 
They lose today. Today, at least from the collateral damage standpoint, because of Peterson and Bachelor uh, coming in and, and making up for the short outing by Vargas after his uh, tight hamstring, maybe that was mitigated a little bit. But the damage that could have happened in terms of the players uh, being a little bit tired going forward, uh, you know, having a short bullpen, having a bullpen that's a little bit burnt out. Essentially, Mickey Calloway made the decision today that he wasn't going to go all in to win the last game of the Milwaukee series. You saw the lineup that didn't have Conforto, didn't have McNeil, didn't have Cano. And he said, I'm looking at the long play here. And the long play is that they're going to build character from this loss. It's only a game in May. Uh, they're 16 and 18. They're a couple of games under 500. You don't want to fall too far under 500, even though it's early. This happened last year. It just spiraled and it got worse. And all of a sudden you wake up and you're 10 under. And now it takes a month of good baseball to get back into it. As it is now, it's just a couple of games. Uh, you can get back to the sea uh, level very quickly, and you should get uh, this week uh, with Miami and, and that series coming up. But I think this is going to be a test for Mickey Calloway. Mickey, who I've supported, who I think um, really hasn't done anything outstanding in terms of, uh, to me, being above and beyond your, your run-of-the-mill manager of, of today's game. But I like the fact that he has experience with the staff. I know that's Island's uh, department, but I think having another guy in there that understands pitching and pitching at a high level certainly could help. Uh, it could help spot talent. The talent, um, And you hope that it will help get some of these guys who are on the fringes uh, maximize and be the best version uh, of what their talent could bring to the table. Um, you know, he's made some bad moves in the past. Uh, I think he managed fine in that 18-inning game. I mean, there's nothing in that 18-inning game from a Mickey Calloway standpoint unless you really want to quibble about Edwin Diaz being brought in a tie game, which most people today, including the writers, will applaud because you never really wanted to bring your closer in in a tie game on the road. But at some point, do you preserve the game now and give yourself a chance to win, or do you wait for the uh, the save, which may never happen? It's it's. Uh, it's almost potato-potato. That's really what you look at it. And you could argue it both ways, but maybe Flexen comes in earlier and blows the game before it even gets to Diaz. So who, who the heck knows? But I think this is a big week because Mickey's been positive. Uh, you heard it when you had the familiar blown save earlier in the week, how he's like, yeah, he, he focused on the five positive outs. And he was really good for those five outs, Familia. Uh, he talks about Rosario, and he got him right back out in the lineup today despite his struggles defensively. And he was rewarded with a three-hit game by Rosario. So I think he's out there supporting his players, being very player-centric. I'm not saying that he's that he's coddling them because you've seen accountability already from the organization in tra- with the Travis Darno situation. If the organization wasn't serious about holding the players accountable, Darno would still be on the roster. Darno showed no progress uh, in his rehab. He had an awful game a week ago. Uh, probably was one of the big reasons why uh, Syndergaard had a bad start uh, on that Saturday. And they right away made the switch, and they went to Nito, and, and Nito rewarded them uh, with uh, good defensive play and extra innings. Uh, a big hit uh, the, the following day on the, on the Sunday. Seems to be a little livelier with the bat. So you look at it, it's a win for the Mets. So there is accountability. Now, with Rosario at some point, you know you want to see that as well. And, and I guess they're not at the, the stage where they're ready to bench him. For Echeverria, and that's a whole other thing with bringing up Echeverria for Dom Smith. But this week is important because Mickey's been positive. Mickey's been supportive. Mickey hasn't called out his team. He doesn't. He doesn't seem like the guy that that turns over the water cooler. He's not the guy to go out there and uh, and shake it up. 
And I don't think Terry Collins was that guy either, even though he portrayed himself to be. I don't think he was that guy either. I don't know if the Bobby Valentine, Billy Martin, Lou Pinella type manager exists anymore. I know it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and I don't know if a hard-ass manager, one that you know really uh, calls out his players publicly or puts a lot of pressure on them consistently, is necessarily the the guy that, that, that gets the job done anymore. But I do know that there has to be a point in time where you have to look at your team and say the time is now. And if this thing really spirals, let's, let's talk about worst-case scenario, where they go to San Diego and they get swept again. And, and then let's think even worse than that, that they lose two out of three or they have a one-in-four week. And now you're going into next week where um, the team is – at that point, if you're one in four, now you're five games under 500, and you're heading into the middle of May. Not time to push panic mode. Now it also depends: is the rest of the league, which is really bunched up, stay bunched up with you? Because if that's the case, then maybe you get a little more patient. But this could start moving away. You know, teams like Philly and Chicago and Milwaukee, because you're also looking at wild card scenarios. San Diego, LA, if they start moving towards eight, nine, ten games over 500 early, and you're five under, that's a gap. You know, now you're not looking at 85 to 88 wins and meandering at that pace uh, being acceptable until you find your, your, your legs. And I do believe you have, I always say, 50, sometimes more because of the second wild card games to find your legs. But if, but if the league plays at a higher level, if the top teams think a couple of years back when Chicago and Pittsburgh won in the high 90s for the wild card, if the Mets didn't have a division where the Nats didn't come to play, if the Nats played at a 95, 96, 97 game uh, win pace level, the Mets would have never made the playoffs that year. They won the division with 90 wins. So you, you don't want to let this thing get too uh, away from you. You don't want the media to start circling the wagon, the vultures. And that could happen this week. You go to San Diego, a team that's played well early, but still a team that you should be able to compete and beat when you have Syndergaard and, and DeGrom. Forget about the, the Mets start on Wednesday. Let's put that into the parking lot for a minute uh, because you don't know what's going to happen there. And you could still probably navigate a game with uh, with Gagno and Oswald and maybe some of these relievers who are starting to show a little bit. Like, you know, Lugo could potentially be a guy that gives you three innings. I think he should be a guy that gives you three innings, even though you might not have him available the next day. Same with uh, Gazelman, two to three innings. So the time is now. I think it's important to just take a breather, take a step back. The, the, the panic is going to set in. The feeling of 2018 and 2017 is going to set in. And to a certain extent, they went through these stri- these these these. Uh, tests or these periods in 2016 so you know that's that's going to be the case but that's where let's see what kind of leadership mickey calloway is his leadership is what he brings is his style which appears to be from the outside a very calm very measured very balanced down the middle hey you know process 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 because there's a lot of process here that makes you feel good the bullpen and the pitching was outstanding in a hitter's ballpark against a good offensive team all weekend. Granted, Yelich wasn't in the lineup until today, but they still have a good number of hitters in that lineup. And that's a hitter's ballpark, a ballpark that, you know, they have not pitched well in in prior years. I mean, they've lost, what, 11 out of 12 at this ballpark now? Uh, you, know, uh, you know, Cincinnati's had a good start pitching-wise. City Field's starting to hit its, uh, hit its level where you expected, where, you know, balls go to die with the weather and how bad it was this week. We'll see how the weather is next weekend. Supposed to be a lot more rain again, so who knows how how long it's going to be with the the atmosphere here in, in New York and how lousy of a spring it's been so far before the uh, the ball and the humidity and the ball maybe start flying again at City Field. So um, it'll be real interesting to see 
how this week transpires. And I'm not saying this will make or, make or break, but I can tell you it's not going to make them. It's going to get them back to where they should be. It's not going to totally break them, but a bad week can really make Mickey Calloway's seat get hot. And I don't know if they would pull the plug quick, and I'm talking about Van Wagenen on him. I, I don't know exactly how much leash that Calloway has. We also have to factor in Jeff Wilpon, the owner, because you know, he, you know, if you remember a few years ago, he got Dave Hudgens fired when the Mets weren't hitting in May. That was a lot from what I hear. That was a lot of Jeff Wilpon getting him fired, more so than Sandy Alderson. So when, when does the seat get hot? Does it start getting hot? Is it getting hot now? Can you blame him for losing a game in 18 innings that he managed very well and the umpire squeezed a, probably a 4A pitcher in the 18th inning against, on the road? Can you blame him for a couple of hanging sliders? Uh, one, uh, well, the hanging slider to Iglesias and a fastball that Wink, Winker just got a hold of and, and drilled? Uh, Edwin Diaz is, is maybe the, arguably the best closer in the game. I probably would put him behind Hader, but he's, he's up there. Can you really blame the manager for that? Uh, can you blame the manager for a team-wide slump when Cano and Nimmo and Conforto, uh, you know, even Alonzo, despite his heroics and his home run, have come back down? He's come back down to earth. That they've all gone into a slump. They're still averaging about four point six, four point seven runs a game. That's enough, in my opinion, to win. The problem is you've had the extreme five point five, five point six, six runs a game average. Now you've had the opposite, where they're averaging two and a half, three runs a game. When will they come where consistently, day in and day out, they're in that four-and-a-half to five-run average? Now that the pitching is now uh, pitching to, you know, one, two, you know, two runs a game instead of six runs a game, they're down, you know, they're, they're starting to get to their, their sea legs. When are all these things going to sync up? It needs to be soon, and it needs to be now because uh, you don't want to see this team get too big of a hole. I don't think that this manager can survive that. I think the media will start to put a crush on him. I think the fans will put a crush on him. I think the negativity and the environment, which has never been, even in the best of days, positive around the team at City Field will get worse. And I don't think that that's conducive for them being successful and winning. And, and I really stand by that. As far as uh, the other you know, story, I mean, it really revolves around, uh, one, Dom Smith getting demoted, which I, I, I really, I saw the outrage about this. And I have to tell you, it, to me, it, it's laughable because... Dom Smith has had a nice start as a bench player, but he's not Alonzo, and I know it's early and we have to see Alonzo go around the league a couple of times, uh, but by all accounts, it looks like he has a lot of sustainable principles with the way he approaches his craft and the work he puts in, something that I don't think even the new version of Dom Smith has ever hit that level. Uh, Dom Smith, to me, is probably better served playing every day, probably better served getting traded at some point, to a team where he can play every day in the big leagues. And the only way he's going to prove himself is now at Syracuse, continuing to go down there and show everybody that he is a big leaguer. And what a real big leaguer, a guy who really wants to be in the big leagues, will go down and tear up AAA pitching and not sulk. And I'm really looking to see how that uh, works out down there for him. You know, he's already taking, and, and to me, he's entitled to the three-day uh, lead time before he reports. If I were Dom Smith and I wanted to get back to the big leagues, I would have been in Syracuse the next day hitting the tar out of the baseball. But we'll see. Let's see how this – it was reported that he wasn't really happy. Um, you know, We'll see how this uh, uh, plays out. Now, the other part of that is Echeverria getting called up. Now, I like Echeverria's defense. Even last night on that cue shot next to innings when he was playing third, I think it was Moustakis that hit it. I mean, that was a tough play that he made look easy, and he threw a bullet 
flat-footed to first base. So this guy is 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 defensively a whiz. And if Rosario, and you had the, the three-hit game today, and I know that Rosario has shown progress with his bat, and I know he's young, and I know that all the way back to the winter, I've heard even guys like Steve Phillips on MLB Network Radio talk about how much improvement he's made, how he talks to those around the game, and how they feel like you know they love this kid. And he's still young, and you don't want to give up on somebody so quickly. But defensively, he's been an abomination. His range still is subpar. And I have a real issue with a shortstop who's not elite defensively, or at least slightly above league average. Forget it. Give me average. If you're going to be average or too below average, or significantly in this case, case below average at shortstop, you better hit a ton. You better be Howard Johnson offensively. That's what you better be. And he's nowhere near Howard Johnson offensively. You better be Derek Jeter offensively. He's nowhere near that. And I don't know if he'll ever be much better than he is now, but I can live with this offensive version of Rosario, who's a league average to above league average uh, shortstop. I cannot live with this when he's significantly below league average, not making simple plays, not catching throws from the outfield, uh, becoming borderline Steve Blass on defense. I can't live with that. And the reason why you don't want to let Echeverria go out there and sign somewhere else and get a job somewhere else is because one of the issues you're going to run into with that position is that if something happens, if Rosario gets hurt or worse yet really, really needs to go back down and either work on his defense or he regresses offensively, you need to have a veteran backup. And it can't be Lowry because when Lowry comes back, Lowry's probably your third baseman. And he may need to spell Cano at second base at times. Um, depending on what they do with McNeil and what's going on with the outfield. He hasn't played a lot of shortstop in recent years, so I don't know if you want to just plug him in over there. And I can't comment on how he could play the position because I haven't seen him play the position in, in, in probably ever or a long time. So to me, you need to have that veteran. And if that means keeping Echevarri on the, on the roster and, and, the, and the collateral damage to that was Dom Smith, well, you know what? Dom Smith and his defense at first, I don't know if he would have made that play that Alonzo... Uh, did not make in the ninth and the 18th inning, which was a tough play. I don't see many plays that Alonzo isn't making. The Dom Smith's defense at first would make a difference. I think you need to have Alonzo just play the position. I think you need to give Alonzo the rope to hang himself defensively in the late innings. And you need to have Dom Smith go down and prove that he wants to be in the big leagues. Get him hitting. He's 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 your caddy right now over there. Forget about making him learn another position. There's no room for him in the outfield, especially with McNeil playing left. Right now, that's McNeil has made him really learning another position irrelevant. Kudos to him to try to volunteer to do that. But, you know, Dom Smith needs to uh, hit the tar out of the ball, and then he needs to be part of a trade to fill another need, whether it be a rotation piece, bullpen piece, or maybe a combination of both. That's what he needs to be right now, and he needs to show. And if I'm another general, if I'm another general manager, I'm looking to see how does he go down and handle this in Syracuse. So, um, so that's really where we're at. Uh, you know, Callaway, this will be an interesting week. The seat's getting a little warm. I'm not ready to push the panic button, but he's a very positive guy, very measured. I'm supporting his, his, his way of running this thing. He's not running around like the sky is falling, but they need to pivot, and they need a couple of big starts from their two big guns in DeGrom and Syndergaard. They need to start putting some runs on the board. They need to get back to scoring four or five runs a game. I'm not expecting them to average six runs a game like they were earlier in the in the, in the month of April. That's not realistic. That's hard for any team to do. Even the uh, 
powerful offensive teams, like when the Yankees had all their sluggers before they got hurt. Those guys aren't even going to average six runs a game. You know, you just it's not realistic with big league pitching. Um, they need to kind of have this extreme performance on both the pitching and the offensive side level out. Rosario, I'm watching because you got a defensive shortstop that if he's going to hit, uh, you know, at below league average or league average Rosario, and he's not going to be uh, showing the improvement, uh, I don't know if you really can justify putting him at shortstop over Echevarria. And then Dom Smith. What can Dom Smith bring in terms of a trade? Is he going to go down there and sulk and not perform and look bad down in Syracuse and expect a call up? It's not the way this thing works. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, Danny Nobler, he's the author of a new book. Uh, Danny's a longtime baseball writer. Danny's book is called Unwritten, Bat Flips, The Fun Police, and Baseball's New Future. Pretty apropos after we watch Jesse Winker have a pretty Bush League performance at City Field throughout the four-game series. We see Pete Alonzo with some antics uh, on a home run in the ninth inning yesterday. A lot of uh, players are uh, treating the celebration in baseball a lot differently than we're used to over the years. And uh, what does Danny think about it? What did the subjects of his book, the players that he interviewed, think about the new type of way that baseball looks at some of those unwritten rules, celebrations, bat flips, etc.? You're listening to the Talking Mets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. We'll be back with more right after this. Trying his best to put him aside without even a whimper. Strike out, a pop out, the one-strike pitch on the way to Nimmo. Down the left field line, and it's a sliding grab made by Winker, and he got it, and that's the old ball game. And look at Jesse, leaving him off again. Tell him good night. <laughs> look at this guy. He is a lot of fun, man. He is a lot of fun. He told him good night after the home run on Monday and tells him good night with a sliding catch here. We're back, and uh, joining us is author of the book, Unwritten, Bat Flips, The Fun Police, and Baseball's New Future, longtime baseball writer, Danny Nobler. He's on the line now. Danny, pleasure to have you on, and uh, pretty appropriate, this uh, book, this uh, early part of the season. I have seen more celebrating. Just look at City Field this week with Jesse Winker, and you got Pete Alonzo the other night at a game-tying home run. There's, there's more celebrations than ever before, you know? So welcome to the program, and how are you? I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me. And, and I think you're right. I, I think we're seeing it. it, it, it it's uh, as we said, baseball's new future. This is uh, this is the let the kids play era. And there's some resistance to it at times. But uh, overall, we're seeing much more uh, outward shows of emotion and acceptance of that than we've ever seen before. Now, everyone's going to focus on bat flips and Jose Bautista. But uh, when you wrote this book, it sounds like you were looking more about how the players, not only do they interact with how they celebrate with their teammates, with the fans, kind of a, just an overall climate of the players' view on the game now and into the future. Am I correct on that? Yeah, the, the overall culture of the game, how it's changed, how it hasn't changed, because there's a lot, a lot of things that people think are different that we actually have examples from in the past. And, and a look at... at how why things happen that way and what we might expect in the future now it, it's always hard to predict exactly how things will go but we can talk about why things might change and where they might change 
in the future, how they've changed in the past, and how recently some of the things have changed. And it looks to me like it's hard for a manager today to, you know, really put a clamp down all this. Like, I go back to Jesse Winker. He was in uh, New York this week. He hits a big home run, great. But, I mean, he celebrated around the bases. I mean, he started jumping up the first baseline. He did, like, a pool dive in the dugout, celebrated for an Iglesias home run coming out of the dugout. Then he makes a great catch uh, and, and waves to the fans. Like, in a vacuum, none of that is, I guess, bad. It just doesn't seem professional. It's the difference between being in college, being in high school, being in Little League, than being in a pros. And I'm not saying they shouldn't celebrate, but it's also like it's April. There's nobody in the stands. It's a game between the Mets and the Reds. Is this the time to act like that? I, you know, it, it almost seems like is that the focus that a young player should really have? Shouldn't you be about acting like you've been there before? Well, that's a legitimate question, and I, I, I think you will. As I said, I think you will get that uh, pushback on it. And now, most of the things that Winker did were more based around the fans than about the opponent. So I, I think uh, the Mets, some of the Mets people might have rolled their eyes about them, but it wasn't so much he was showing up the other team. He was kind of having some fun with the fans. Now, the question of whether his team might look at it and say, hey, you might want to tone it down a little bit. It's uh, early May or late April, whichever that, that series I think went over the, the 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 end of the month, then they might say, "Hey, you know, let's." That's not how we want to look as a team. And you could have something like that. You could either have a manager or some veteran players on a team say, "You know what? You might you might think about that the next time." I don't know if that happened with the uh, Reds, uh, but. Uh, it's an interesting point, and I do think that there have been teams, there there are teams currently in baseball, where if someone did that, someone might just pull them aside and say, eh, think about it next time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you look at the NBA, and the NBA, you go back to the early 90s, even late 80s. I mean, Larry Bird was a big-time trash talker. Maybe not demonstrative to the fans maybe that was more showtime in LA but the NBA always had characters and and maybe the nature of that game the closeness and proximity to the court the fans are builds into that showmanship type of thing NFL has been going that way for a long time why receivers are some of the most eccentric athletes out there with the the cell phone with Joe Horn and all sorts of other nonsense that's gone on and the NFL used to be very strict now they're not uh look soccer overseas uh, talk about uh, hot dogs. I mean, put mustard on everybody who 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 hits uh, who scores a goal. Baseball's been very resistant. They had Sammy Sosa a little bit do some of that stuff back in the '90s, and that didn't really sit well with everybody. It, it, you know, are we seeing now where now it's melding into what the NBA has been, what the NFL is? Is this is this inevitable uh, that we would just have to accept that we have to accept guys like me who have been watching the game 30 years, guys like you? covering it and watching it even longer that, you know, it ain't like it used to be. Well, I, I think some things it's, it's not going to be like it used to be. Society isn't like it used to be. And to, baseball reflects society in a lot of ways. Now there are other reasons. The game is much more international than it ever was. Not everyone 
who was involved. You mentioned uh, Winker, uh, obviously. He's not from Latin America, but there are more Latin American players than ever. And that's not a – I'm not, I'm not making this a racial thing. It's a cultural thing. If you go to a game, if you go to a Winter League game in Santa Domingo or in San Juan, Puerto Rico, you've seen way more of this, of exactly what you're talking about, than you will ever see in a major league game. But because we have more players from those countries playing in the major leagues, you're going to get some influence from that. The same way you're going to get some influence from Asian baseball because we have more players from Japan and Korea and Taiwan playing in the major leagues. And also just younger American players growing up in a different era in which different things are encouraged and as you said, the NBA has changed some, in, in, and, and the NFL certainly has changed some in terms of what is acceptable. Baseball is the same way. Now, baseball, the difference is in the NFL, a lot of the celebrations, the NFL has put them into the rule book. In baseball, it's more a matter of players deciding as a group themselves, not voting in, in meetings or anything, but just in how they handle it what is more acceptable and what isn't. And, uh, and, and yeah, there's going to be changes, and there will continue to be changes. It, I can't tell you what a Major League Baseball game will look like 20 years from now, but in some ways, in some of these cases, it will not look exactly like it looks now. On the other hand, let's not overstate how much things have changed. I mean, Reggie Jackson certainly showed plenty of emotion when he hit home runs. Now, he may not have flipped his bat up in the air, but he stood and wa- stood at the plate and watched it. He made sure everyone knew who it was who was hitting it. Uh, you know, Tom Lawless, I don't know if it was the first bat flip ever, but it was certainly the first big documented one in the 1987 World Series. That's a long time ago. We didn't see things to the extent maybe we see them now, but if you look back, Dennis Eckersley, the way he celebrated strikeouts, there were shows of emotion, just not as much. And there's never going to be the same amount in baseball that there are in some of the other sports, just simply because of the nature of the game. And especially when you compare it to the NFL of playing 162 games, playing five, six days a week, you're not going to react to any one incident in a game the way someone will to any one thing in an NFL game. Yeah, let's not even forget uh, Daryl Strawberry's game uh, was a game seven home run. I think Al Nipper threw at him uh, the following spring. So back then, they people had long memories, and they, they punished you even in spring training. So you, Tom Lawless didn't hit a home run all regular season. It's one of the World Series. And you're right, I think he stared at that one. That was a big, big, big story. Now that that's yeah. done nightly. Have uh, Danny Nobler, and the, still- uh, the author – Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, Mike, there's still long memories. Uh, just the other night uh, in in Miami, uh, the uh, the Braves threw a pitch behind Jose Urania, the first time he'd faced them since uh, he threw it Ronald Acuna last uh, August. Well, they remembered, and they threw a pitch behind him. Kevin Gossman threw it and got tossed out of the game. Uh, people wondered what would happen, what the reaction would be a couple of weeks ago when the Mets, uh, Jacob Rame threw a couple of pitches over the head of uh, Reese Hoskins. Now, as it turned out, they didn't. there wasn't any 
throwing out, but when Hoskins hit the home run the next day, uh, he ran around the bases just a little slowly. And, and I think people remember there's some other times with Mets Phillies rivalry in particular, where someone was deemed to have celebrated maybe a little bit too much. And maybe in a series later in the season or the next season, even someone might get thrown out. Yep. That was Larry Anderson. They didn't like how Jose Reyes, and that was a big thing about Jose Reyes and, and the dancing. And, and think about it. That was only a decade ago where the Mets with uh, Beltran and Delgado and Reyes, and it goes back to some of the cultural differences with the Latin American players. A lot of teams didn't like the Mets because of yeah. that whole situation. Now I'm not sure that's a big deal in 2019 if that team is, is playing now. You know, I, 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 I certainly don't think it's a, a, as big of a deal. Um, the, the bat flip, uh, it almost is becoming the signature – um, you know, a player's signature thing, as I guess is what I would say. Similar to like in the NBA when you hit a shot and you do kind of your thing, and Larry Johnson used to do the L here for the Knicks after a three-pointer. The bat flip's becoming that thing. Now, that was controversial just a few years ago with uh, Batista. Now everybody's doing it. Um, it's a big part of what you're talking about. Uh, what did you learn a little bit about the bat flip situation? I mean, the players, are they kind of like now scripting it? You know, do a lot of them like it? Is it is more of it being made than maybe we have to, I guess. Well, a lot of them do like it. There's also a significant number of players who don't like it for themselves, even if they like it for somebody else. Uh, Aaron Judge would be one. You don't see him flip his bat. You don't see him stand and watch home runs. He puts his bat down and runs around the bases when he hits a home run. Uh, Chris Bryant of the Cubs, same way. And the Cubs are an interesting contrast. And I, I talk about this in the book about Chris Bryant does it that way. Javier Baez, kind of the opposite. Uh, and Bryant, I talked to Bryant about this, and I thought one of the things that he said that was interesting was he likes watching Baez, but he doesn't want to do things that way. And he said it's okay when he does it because it's genuine. It's part of his personality. He said if I tried to do that, then I would be stepped. It wouldn't be. It would be fake. That's not me. The same way that if Baez tried to curb all his emotion and look like Chris Bryant, it wouldn't be genuine. What Baez does is genuine for him. The way Bryant handles it is genuine for him. And I think on every team you'll see some of those contrasts. And what players, I think, are more likely to accept with bat flips, there's, I think there's, there's probably three or four different things that make them more likely to accept it. One is that it's part of the guy, what the guy is and who, what he does. And it's just kind of genuine emotion. The other is that it is just emotion about accomplishing something for his team. And that it's not thrown in the face of the other team. If you toss your bat towards your own dugout, you're going to, you're less likely to have trouble than if you toss it in the direction or if you stare in the direction of the other team or the pitcher while you're doing it. The other thing is, obviously, we're, what the situation in the game and the season is. You're much less likely to get in trouble with your, with your opponent flipping your bat after a game-winning home run, walk-off home run, game-winning home run in the eighth, ninth inning than you are if you do it when you're down 7 nothing in the fourth inning. And, and, uh, and all those things come together. The other thing is, and I don't know if this is as true now, but it's still somewhat true. 
guys who have accomplished more in the game get a lot more leeway in what they can do in terms of celebration. David Ortiz celebrated things a lot. David Ortiz didn't get thrown at a lot. People accepted. You know what? He's hit a lot of home runs. That's how David Ortiz is. It's okay. When a guy comes up and it's his third home run, it's his fifth season, and he wants to flip his back. Well, maybe he could because it's just out of the ordinary. But if he acts like, well, you know, I'm I'm Mr. Big, someone might say so. Yeah, I I, I hear you. That's that's you know you forget how many players that uh, celebrated, and it, it's not a new thing. You know, as I'm listening to you bring up some historical points, I'm like, yeah, now I remember that. Uh, the, Danny Nobler is the uh, the author. Unwritten is the book. Uh, Bat flips the fun police. And baseball's new future. The other part of this, Danny, is pitching inside. We saw it with the Hoskins situation here in New York. Uh, you know whether you believe he was being thrown at, which I I know that Gabe Kapler has said publicly he believes it was intentional, or you believe what the Mets are saying, which is the guys trying to pitch inside. And I know that Dave Island's been preaching for that entire staff to pitch inside. Um, if guys are going to celebrate and home runs are going to go out out of the ballpark at a rapid rate, tempers are going to flare. Pitchers don't want to. Forget about the celebration part. Pitchers don't want to be uh, batting practice. You don't want to be on the mound and that isolated where everyone's watching you and be looked at as a batting practice pitcher. At some point, inside throwing inside is going to become more and more part of the game, maybe because of survival for these guys. And, and baseball is looking at this, and it's funny because I don't remember Roger Clemens getting suspended for hitting a certain Mets catcher in the head. And, uh, hmm. you know, Raymond got suspended, and, and then you had the situation with Urena. It seems like there's selective ethics uh, at times with this pitching inside, uh, but it's going to have to be addressed because you may have to allow some leeway here. Not that you want to hurt anybody, but if, if coming inside is, is going to be an automatic suspension or be frowned upon, then you're going to have batting practice, and, and I don't necessarily want the game to turn into that, regardless of the fun with the flips and all the other stuff that go on. Uh, those are legitimate points, but I think you have to take into consideration also pitchers are throwing harder than ever, and in sometimes also throwing harder than ever, having less control, less command of what they're doing than ever. There's also much more of an acceptance now of the idea that you don't want to let pitchers to throw near someone's head, and I think the problem with what Rame did even though it didn't come that close to hitting Hoskins. Yeah, pitch inside, but that wasn't a pitch inside meant to compete. If it was, he missed his spot by a whole lot a couple of times because that was over his head. Now, you don't come inside to command the plate by throwing the ball over somebody's head. That's not the case. Now, what you on the other hand, what you're saying is completely legitimate. One of the biggest parts of pitching is making the hitter uncomfortable. Now you can make the hitter uncomfortable in many different ways. You can make him uncomfortable with a ball that moves. That's really hard to hit. That's uncomfortable, but you can also make him uncomfortable by throwing the ball a little bit inside where he's got to move his feet a little bit. And that's been traditional, traditionally the way to do it. And pitching and hitting, you don't want – if you're pitching, you don't want a guy just feeling like he owns everything. And you certainly don't want him feeling like he can disregard anything on the inside part of the plate 
because if you come in there, you're going to get suspended. So you don't want a game like that. On the other hand, there were times in the course of baseball history when if you hit the ball hard off someone, he might come up and really come up and in near your head. There's much more of an acceptance now, I think, among pitchers and hitters that it's unacceptable for a pitcher to intensely throw the ball at or near someone's head. And I think that's a really good thing. There, now, whether it's okay to throw the ball inside and risk hitting them in the side, in the arm, in the butt, that's much more up to dispute and still, I think, under major discussion within the game. But I think it's generally accepted by almost everybody that it's not a good idea to be throwing the ball up near someone's head or at their head. No, I agree. And look, Max Scherzer, D- Jacob DeGrom, guys like that that, that understand they had, know how to command and control pitches could push somebody off the plate. Uh, Jacob Rahm, he probably, you're right, that pitch is not just pitching inside, but that goes to the other conversation that you've heard throughout the game, and I'm sure you who cover the game for a long time have heard this as well. A lot of these kids are being brought up because they throw 97, 98. Ram is one of those guys. Um, everybody needs these guys in the bullpen. There's a fear about the old school, you know, 88 to 92 guy coming out of the bullpen, maybe he changes speeds as a curveball. Can that guy compete and win? Um, if you can't pitch inside because you don't have a command and control like a ROM, you become batting practice, then the league becomes too much like the NBA is in the regular season where nobody can play defense and it's a three-point contest. And I understand that that's entertainment, but then the league and the NBA changes in the postseason where you can play some defense, and that's the real game, right? Baseball doesn't have that luxury. I don't think you could have a postseason game and a regular season game. You almost have to start teaching these kids, well, if you're going to have to throw hard, you're going to have to throw hard and you have to command these pitches because you don't want to hurt anybody. They may not necessarily want – should be in the big leagues. And then on top of it, the commissioner's talking about expansion. Where are you going to find these guys? Well, you know, that's already. the thing. Where are you going to find these guys to pitch? Because I don't that's know if they have enough pitchers already. out there already. Right. Well, it's an issue already, and not just because of having 30 teams. It's because of the way the game is played right now with pitch counts and – with a belief that uh, every team now, the Yankees, I think, started doing this more than everybody. Maybe the Orioles did, but now it's general. Everybody does it if they can, is get a lot of hard-throwing relievers with options remaining, use them up because you're going to use a lot of them every game, and then when when they've thrown too much, you option them out and bring in a couple other guys. And that you have teams... First of all, you're carrying more pitchers on your roster than have ever been carried. 12 and 13 pitching, pitcher staffs routine now. But it's not even 12 or 13 because the way they're optioning guys in and out, you're really closer to 20 pitchers at any time and over the course of a season, 30. And so when you, if you multiply 30 different pitchers by 30 different teams, that's a lot of pitchers. You're right especially when with the emphasis on just velocity, especially out of the bullpen, you're not going to find guys who have great command. And every team would prefer to have a pitcher who has better command, obviously. But there aren't enough of them out there, and you're rushing them up there 
because of the emphasis on the way the game is played now and on velocity. That's the way it is right now. The rules don't do anything to, uh, to interfere with that. I don't know if they should. There will certainly be, as we go on, points of discussion about that. There'll be points of discussion about how useful it is to – everyone knows the teams pull their starters earlier for a variety of reasons, one of them being the numbers that show that pitchers aren't as effective the third time through the order in any one game. Well, that's true, but if you expand the number of pitchers you're using in your bullpen – are you bringing in effective relievers? And if you use them as much as now teams are, are they going to be effective over the course of a season? I think those are questions that are going to continue to be asked all the way through. And it's very possible that within the next four or five years, you'll see differences in how, in how pitchers are used because teams will look at things and say, maybe this isn't the most effective way to use guys. And some teams will look at that you already see teams do doing things differently. The Rays last year using openers widely through how many of their games. This year they're not doing it as much. We haven't had as much of that so far. Whether we will in the future, I think, is an open question. When you uh, got into this project, I'm sure you had you know one or two things that you wanted to focus on, but I'm sure you learn a lot and things come out that you weren't planning on and became – you know, much different or interesting type of uh, channels you reached into to, to complete the project, to complete the book. What are a couple of things that as you went along that you learned here that you were surprised about, you know, whether it be some unwritten rules that are, are changing or what players are looking at? Tell me something that really surprised you as you went through this project. Yeah, I don't know if anything totally out of the blue surprised me. There are certainly things that were interesting. What, the player's reaction to other player celebrations and things like what Kenley Jansen said to me, where he said, I don't care. Whatever someone wants to do in celebration is okay because I have my own thing. If somebody hits a home run off me, whether you celebrate or not, you're already on my list. And what he then went on to tell me was that list is not of someone he's going to throw at. It's of someone he wants to strike out the next time. Things like that. Things like, how young players, the culture in the clubhouse, how that has changed, how just within the last decade, players went from we had been for, I don't know, ever, but for an awful long time in baseball where young players were supposed to be seen and not heard, sit at their locker, listen, and watch, observe what's going on. Whereas now players coming into the game, having a name of, of their own all the right from the start and believing that they have a, a, almost a sense of entitlement from the start and veteran players in some ways, not often, not just accepting it, but sometimes even encouraging that. So the, some of those changes, I wasn't aware that were as strong as were, as they were mostly in terms of the unwritten rules. I would think I knew m- in just in general terms, what I was going to find, uh, certainly some uh, details of how things are and discussion of how they are applied. Uh, what is acceptable in terms of retaliation? When is there anything acceptable in terms of retaliation? 
Tori Lavella, manager of the Diamondbacks, has to- told his team, uh, I don't want you throwing at anybody in retaliation. We'll handle things other ways. How much is that? Will that become more and more common? I think it probably will become more common. I don't know if it will ever be the the way it is for everyone. Bringing it to full circle here, you know, there was an article in the Daily News from Bill Madden about, you know, obviously attendance was down last year. The weather has been kind of crappy here on the East Coast for the better part of April. Now we're in May. Uh, you could see a lot of empty ballparks that look like mausoleums. You know, some of this is because the games are delayed two hours due to rain. Uh, with offense and more offense, whether you believe the ball's juiced or because of all the things we just talked about with how pitching is being handled, more offense may not mean more entertaining, but, you know, it's a combination of more offense, maybe some of the things that you're talking about in this book, how players now are being themselves. Maybe that becomes more marketable players, more marketable game. But a lot of people have a, a doomsday approach to baseball. They're concerned about baseball, and they're trying to find ways to fix it. I, I'm always one that says, hey, organically these sports typically stand the test of time. Um, with all that we talked about with your book, with what you know about you know the game and, and where it's headed with offense and pitching, I mean, is this going to be a worse game than what we saw the last 20 years? Is the next 20 years going to be a worse game, or do, or do you have a more optimistic outlook? than maybe what you're reading about the last year or so. Yeah, I hope it's not going to be a worse game. I think in some ways it'll be a very good game. But I I think what you're talking about are areas of concern. And part of it is the way analytics have been applied, and I'm not anti-analytics by any means, but the way analytics have been applied has led to changes that have the ball not in play as much. Uh, and that's not as that's not a great thing for the entertainment value of the game. And I don't blame baseball for looking at potential rule changes. And any baseball is a very traditional game and any proposed rule change meets resistance every time. And I don't want to see drastic changes, but I don't have a problem with smaller changes, especially if they would make, if, if they end up making it a better game where the ball is in play more, there's not as much dead time. And we, it's, it's an enjoyable game to watch because there are games now that aren't as enjoyable to watch. And they're always over the course of 162 games. There's always going to be some games that are enjoyable to watch, but you want, as many of them as possible. I think the other thing that baseball needs to address, and this is a difficult thing, but there are ways to do it, is rewarding teams for not winning. And I I, I know that's an issue, not just in baseball, but in other sports as well. But when you're trying to sell tickets over a 162-game season, if too many of those games are either against one where one team or sometimes both teams are not not only not trying hard to win over the and I don't mean in any one game because I think every team tries hard to win every game they play. The Miami Marlins aren't a very talented team this year, but Don Mattingly and his players try to win every single game they they play. The the front office for various reasons, you can't say the same and they're not the only ones. 
And I don't necessarily blame them because it is incentivized within the rules of the sport right now that the way to get better players for the future is to lose more often. That's not good. I hope they do some things to change that. And so, so there, there are changes that can be made that can make it a more enjoyable game, a more attractive game, and a game that people are much more willing to spend their money to go see. But I don't think baseball's in crisis. I don't think it's a doomsday scenario by any means. At the same time, they should and they are looking at ways to make it better. Danny, what do you got coming up? Obviously, this book has been out about a month. Great stuff. The book is unwritten. Bat Flips, The Fun Police, and Baseball's New Future. Add Danny Nobler on Twitter. Anything else you got going on you want the listeners to know about? We always enjoy yeah, following you when you come for, on. Sure. Working on a few things for Bleacher Report. Working on a uh, story uh, leading up to the draft, which is next month, uh, about a player, uh, one of the issues in the game right now, and it became an issue last year with Kyler Murray. Uh, can baseball get enough of the best athlete, best young athletes in the game to concentrate on baseball rather than football or basketball? And I've got a story coming up about a young player who uh, is an All-American player in baseball and in football and, and the decision he faces and how important this is to baseball, not necessarily to get any one player, but to get more of those players into the game. Interesting stuff. We'll keep an eye on it for it. Uh, enjoy the time here today, Danny. Thank you so much. We'll catch up again, all righty? Okay, Mike. Good talking to you again. Thanks. That's Danny Nobler. He's the author of Unwritten, Bat Flips, The Fun Police, and Baseball's New Future. Good stuff. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we return, final thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. I'd be able to pull the audio off, but I was able to grab the Tom Lawless audio. And if you look at the video of that clip, that is probably the initial bat flip, like Danny Nobler said. I mean, Lawless basically looks at the ball. You would think he had hit 30 home runs a year for his career. Meanwhile, it was his first home run in over three years in that World Series. And uh, he watched it, and he kind of flipped the bat, and, and away you go in an era when Something like that will get you drilled between the eyes. Uh, even though that was the 80s, you get drilled between the eyes on that. But it was the World Series, and it was a big moment, and you could kind of forgive that or understand that, even though it definitely would grate under your skin if you were the Minnesota Twins in that situation. And uh, you know what? Danny did mention a number of players like Dennis Ecklersley, David Ortiz, guys that many years ago were – Probably just as demonstrative as some of the players today. I guess what bothers me, and 
from a perspective, if you were the Cincinnati Reds and you're the fans of that team, you probably love Winker and Winker's um, antics. I guess, is it a case of overdone? And maybe I'm more of a guy that believes in a team going out, grinding it out, doing what really is your job and not celebrating what really is your job, but celebrating more the big moments. No issue when you think back of a Mike Piazza celebrating after he hit that home run to cap that 10-run inning in 2000. If you watch Piazza, he had a, a fist pump down the a first baseline. You know, and sure, guys like Piazza, Strawberry, when they hit some moonshots, you saw them stare at them at home plate a little bit. I guess that could be considered showboating, but... I don't think that that was done consistently on every single home run and every single play. I guess I just see a lot of, and it reminds me of back to the Sandlot days when someone hit a home run, it was like a big deal, and you'd go out and you'd all greet them at home plate, and it'd be almost a celebration, especially if it was somebody who had struggled and and hit their first home run. So I guess I I look at it more as amateurish, but... The game is changing. Emotion is part of the game now. I guess that's a criticism that some have put about baseball, that baseball suppresses that. I am not as Danny Nobler. I I agree with him. I'm not doom and gloom about the game. I do worry, and I said this last week, that if they're messing with the baseballs, if they're trying to promote a game where you see more softball scores, which would lead to more pitchers being brought in from the bullpen earlier in the game, I don't think your teams are equipped to put out a good product if if they're messing with the offense or if they're trying to mess with the offense. And I think if it's analytics that are trying to build teams to go more that route, whether they believe that's the right way to win or to create more entertainment, I, I really believe that a game should change and evolve organically, not with too much interference. And if at this point they need to put some rules in play to address some of that, I, I, you have to be open to that. But... Uh, you know, in 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 the long run, I think you're taking a really good game that survived the test of time, well over a hundred years, and you're trying to uh, jam a round peg into a square hole. But anyway, interesting stuff from Danny Nobler. Uh, a lot of uh, interesting stuff will be coming up this week. A big week, I think, for Mickey Calloway when we meet next Sunday. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of maybe trying to do something maybe on the off day on Thursday. I'm not sure. We'll see how the San Diego trip goes. Maybe the off day. We might even have to pop in sooner if things transpire, if things change. But um, it'll be interesting to see how this week goes, and it's a big week. I think the Mets need to go out to San Diego. They need to take two out of three. They need to right themselves, and they need to get the ball moving in the right direction again because this is a team that has a lot of talent. They have an outstanding starting rotation. I know Mats is a question mark right now. You have an elite closer. I do not believe the offense is a six-running game offense, but it's certainly not a two-run per game offense like you've seen it's a, it's an offense that should consistently score four to five runs a game and with this pitching that's more than enough anyway we're out of time i want to thank everyone for tuning in of course i want to thank the good folks over at metsmorizedonline.com i want to thank danny nobler check out his book unwritten bat flips the fun police and baseball's new future you can check him out on twitter at danny nobler of course you can send me a tweet at mike silver media and you get the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Take care, everybody.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.